We, uh, we've been in a series, uh, and we're concluding today, a series that we've been in for the past several weeks, walking through the book of Revelation. Uh, and we've titled the series, uh, Beginning with the End in Mind. If this is your first time here, we're delighted that you're here. We've been talking about dragons and beasts and uh, lamps and lampstands. You've really, uh, you've missed a show, I gotta tell you. We, uh, I, I was telling someone who uh, had missed, and I said, yeah, you, you missed like the pyrotechnics and the smoke machines, which is not true because we didn't have those. Uh, but we've, we've come here, uh, we've been walking through it and really trying to understand in what ways is this book, um, what ways was it good news to them, uh, to the first hearers, and then what ways is it good news to us? And so this morning we come to uh, the last of uh, this series, and I've got to tell you for the past five weeks as we've been wrestling with this book, um, I, um, it's been a book that, uh, that I've needed. It's been a, a series that has been necessary and refreshing and challenging even for me as well. So many of us, I think we came into this series w- with a lot of curiosity. Uh, others of us came into it, frankly, with some fear and some worry because of how we've seen this book handled and treated. Um, it's been one of the most mishandled books in the Bible, I would uh, uh, say. And today, um, as we come to the end of our series, um, we come to the end. But before we tackle uh, the, these last two chapters, I want to say that, uh, that not only just as your pastor, but also as a fellow follower of Jesus, that I've needed this. That as we've read and studied and reflected on the book of Revelation, uh, this series has been necessary, it has been refreshing, and it has been challenging to me. Uh, one of the purposes of this series that we wanted to do was to demystify the book of Revelation a little for us. We wanted to explain some of the imagery and some of the kind of the baffling scenes that we encounter as we walk through uh, this book and to help us understand what's going on. And there's been these two kind of twin questions that we've put forward as we've walked through the book of Revelation. What did it mean then? What did it mean to the original hearers of the book? And then what does it mean to us now? The backdrop of the book, as we've mentioned over and over, is the persecution of the church, particularly the seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And what's in the foreground of the book is that of hope. So in the background is the persecution, and in the foreground is the hope. And uh, Revelation is actually, as we've walked through it, we've noticed that it's a piece of poetry and that it's a song. And the book of uh, the Psalms is the Old Testament hymn book, and in many ways, Revelation is the New Testament hymn book. The majority of our hymns come from the book of Revelation, second only to the Psalter. And so when we ask, what did it mean? We're asking, how was this book a message of hope to its first hearers? And then how is this book a message of hope to us today? And then answering these two questions, and as we've answered them and walked through them, this has actually stirred my own soul, and it's been necessary for me, and it's been quite refreshing for me, but also a challenge to me. One of the questions that's come up is when we first announced this series uh, and stepped into it has been, why in the world are we doing this series now? You know, though this church community is a few years old and this uh, new season as Christ City Church, we're effectively 11 weeks old. And so it seems a little early to be tackling the end of the Bible, don't you think, Watson? And, you know, it's a fair question, but the thing is our mission at Christ City Church is this. To see the kingdom of God on display in D.C. in every life and in every sphere of life. That, our, that our, our mission, our, our work as a church is to see the kingdom of God on display in our city, in every life and in every sphere of life. 
Can you stop for a minute? Perfect. So that means that there's areas of our lives where the kingdom of God is not on display. Frankly. So we're going to pray right now. Because that means there's a family that's in a hard spot. The folks that care about that young one and can't find her. Something's been lost. So God, we turn to you. And we we pray and call out to the one who is on the throne, whose kingdom is advancing. And into this uh, moment that has just intersected our time where we're where where we gather to remember the promises and goodness of God, Lord. There are echoes. There are constant reminders that the enemy is at work. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work even now, that you would go forward with those that are looking for this young one, that you would comfort the family, and that, and that reunion would take place. That by the end of this day, that the reunion would take place, God. We, in this very moment, are crying out to you on behalf of this, of this family that we don't know and this young one that's been lost, God. I pray that you would intervene because we do long to see your kingdom come in this city as it is in heaven. And in your kingdom, things that have been lost are found. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The vision of Christ City Church is to see the kingdom of God on display in every life and in every sphere of life. And church, I want you to know that, that for those of you that call Christ City home, that this is the vision that we're aching towards, that we're praying towards, that we're laboring towards as a community, the kingdom of God on display in every life, individually, in every sphere of life, communally. And this vision, by the way, it's not unique to us and neither is it original with us. That this vision uh, to see, to witness the in-breaking kingdom of God in every life and every sphere of life, that was actually the vision of the seven churches in Asia to which John was writing. And that vision of God's kingdom as ushered in by Christ is what served as the origin for the church in Ephesus and in Smyrna. It's what would animate the church in Laodicea and the others. Just as those churches sought to see the uh, full coming of God's kingdom in their places and times, so too do we long to see the spirit of the sovereign and mighty God come in our time and in our place. And this is why at this time, at the very beginning of our life as a church, in the very first weeks of our life together as Christ City Church, we're putting the bottom line right at the top. We're putting it right up front. And that's why we're beginning with the end in mind so that our work of seeing God's rule and reign animate every life and every sphere of life, all of the lives uh, that you work with, whether it's students or policies or pickup trucks or rocket ships, the homeless or those in the White House, that we long to see God's rule and reign take root and bear fruit in every life and every sphere of life. But here's the thing, the, the road ahead for us it's going to be uh, both beautiful and brutal. Just as it was for the churches in Asia. 
And so as we begin, let us root ourselves in that same hope that was in those churches in Revelation. And so let our hope be, be germinated and generated, but let it be a sober-minded hope as well. The church, as we chart a life of faith together in this amazing city, let us begin with a sober-minded anchoring of hope in Christ, knowing that the way ahead will be filled with joy, it will be filled with celebration, it will be filled with new life, it will be filled with transformation, yet it will also come by way of challenge and resistance and perhaps even martyrdom. But beginning with the end in mind soaks us in the faithful and true message of the gospel that in the end God does win, renewal is ahead, the old order of things does pass away, and the kingdom is coming. And so, I know we're 11 weeks in, but no, I don't think it's too early for us to tackle this because to begin here is biblical, it's righteous, it's mature, and it's steadfast for the days and seasons and years ahead for us. And the series has been, as I've said, it's been necessary, it's been refreshing for me, and this series has been, um, been necessary and refreshing for some of the same reasons that it was that way for its first readers, namely because the handiwork of the enemy is all around me and all around our neighborhoods. It's in our Twitter feeds and it's, and it's in our hearts. As of last night, 93 homicides this year in D.C. 245 cases of sexual abuse. 1,478 assaults with deadly weapons in our city. Those numbers aren't just numbers, but reflect people whose lives and families have been upended by the violent hand of the enemy that is looking to stifle God's kingdom in each life and every sphere of life. Some of you in this room have been personally affected by the brokenness I've just mentioned. You carry in your heart and your gut the pain of having lost someone you loved to violence in our community. And I, with you, long for the old order of things to pass away. But the enemy's handiwork, it's, it's, it isn't only in our community, but it's reflected in the sickness of our country that is having a hard, hard time acknowledging the humanity of people. It seems that at every turn, our country is having a hard time acknowledging the humanity of black and brown lives, a hard time acknowledging the humanity and dignity of women, having a hard time caring for children, especially those born in poverty and the unborn, having a hard time acknowledging the humanity of immigrants and the dignity of Native Americans, failing to acknowledge the humanity of those living in poverty and the ongoing disregard for the elderly. And let me say, I know that in a socially aware and justice-minded church like ours, naming the dehumanizing work of the enemy, that it resonates with us. However, as followers of Jesus, our primary response to the enemy's dehumanizing work isn't retreat. It's not distance. It's, uh, it's, it, it has to include engagement because you cannot affirm humanity at a distance. You cannot say, I care for those living in poverty and not know anyone who is living at or below the poverty line. As a church, we cannot say that black lives matter or our immigration system is broken all the while have our relational lives be so distant from those whose image of godness is being threatened. You can't esteem the elder, the elder saints in our city and not know any. 
can affirm humanity at a distance. And so our call as a church is to always work to intertwine our lives with the lives of those that are being marginalized, even as we proclaim and display the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And the reason for this is theological, by the way. The reason is because that's not how God treated us. Throughout Scripture, we see God making moves towards humanity, embracing people, intertwining his life with the lives of those he made and cares about. In Genesis, the Scriptures tell us that following the creation story, that God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden during the cool of the day. In the Gospel of John, Scripture tells us in the incarnation that Jesus became one of us and he dwelt among us. In the book of Revelation that we just read, in the conclusion of the Bible, in the end of it all, we read that God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. And Because God is a God who moves towards the people, we must likewise be a church that moves toward those to whom we're called to love. I've needed revelation not just because of the context of our city or our nation or world. I've needed it because of the context even of my heart. And I suspect so have you. Because Satan uh, isn't just working in the systems and structures of our world. He's hard at work on the plumbing of our soul. So the evil of pride that leads us to break relationships because of pain that others have caused us, pain sharp that keeps me from forgiveness. Revelations, necessary words to the greedy of which I'm one. Those of us wrestling with what generosity is uh, required of us. We cling tight-fisted to our money or our time or our spaces. And how much am I like the stingy church of Laodicea using my resources on myself or just on those that are like me and neglecting the spirit of generosity? And maybe it's not pride or greed for you. Maybe it's lust in Christ's letter to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, embracing a lust of the day for the things that satisfy for a moment, but leave you empty in the end. So the enemy stirs in you an unsatisfying desire for power or for sex or through our public and though our public hearts long for an end to evil, we see in the world our private hearts have a hard time saying no to pornography or simply putting away our phones. I've needed revelation. We've needed revelation. Because of what we see in our world and what we know is true in our hearts. I've needed revelation's comforting words to remind me that Christ holds the seven stars in his hand, which represents the church and the people of God, and he doesn't let them go. I've needed the word of revelation to remind me that that Christ moves among the seven lampstands, which represents the church and the people of God, and that his dwelling is there and that he's with us, even in the midst of the tempest. I needed to be reminded that not only does Christ hold the church, and not only does he move through the church and the people of God, but he actually holds the world, and that he cares for all of creation. I needed to be reminded that the evil dragon with wickedness riding on its back, is defeated by the Messiah child and his mother. I needed to be reminded that the violent beasts of the land and the tempting beasts of the sea, that they're defeated by the lion who is the lamb. I needed to be reminded that my fate and the sin in my life and in the city, that it isn't sealed, but that there is one who was worthy 
to come and break the seal. And in so breaking, my healing, my salvation, my redemption will set in motion. In this series, at this time in our life as a church, I believe will be the fuel for our shared life together. As we begin individually and collectively, it is right for us to begin with the end of the story in mind so that we can faithfully and humbly live into our mission as a church. I've needed this. That was probably a far longer introduction than I should have gotten into. So let me turn to the end. Revelation 21 and 22. In these last two chapters, John is painting a, a final portrait of what Christ's victory over Satan and the effects of sin, what it's going to look like. And what he paints is a picture of a city and of a garden. The first image that John uses is that of a city in chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Through the rest of the chapter 21, John goes through great pains to describe what uh, that city looked like, its measurements, what it was made out of, the detail of it, the architecture, the location of things within the city. And I, I won't go into detail with those, but let me just say, as you read them, the aim of the description isn't for readers to know the precise measurements and location and acreage of the new city, but rather is to see the images as communicating the majesty of God and, to, and as communicating the character and trustworthiness of his kingdom that is coming and also the expansive nature of his kingdom. And seeing the holy city, what John is bearing witness to is the long-expected fulfillment of God's promise through the prophets that God's future redeemed world would actually, be a, would actually be a city, that it's an urban future. As Westminster Seminary professor Meredith Klein notes, from a biblical perspective, cities were to be regarded as the ultimate goal set before humanity. At the very beginning, human flourishing was always to take a city form. That original urban intent, an intent though tainted like all things by the fall, would actually now become the final fulfillment of the new city that comes down out of heaven. And this new city, John calls the New Jerusalem. It's important to know, by the way, at this point, in him calling it the New Jerusalem, at the time of John's writing, Jerusalem has actually been destroyed by the Roman Empire. It's been laid waste. It's in ruins now. And so what John is describing, it isn't a restoration of that old thing that's been laid waste, but it's something new and something more. And what's striking about this image is that heaven is also a part of it. That heaven isn't left untouched by the all-encompassing uh, work of renewal that's taking place in Revelation 21 and 22. In this image, heaven and earth are actually colliding and intermingling. Yet another example of God ever and always making his way into the lives of those that he loves and that follow him. John's image, it's not of one of people sort of being whisked away into a, a, a heavenly realm, but again, somehow it's of God meeting his people where they are in this new city. Here again, the words of John 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. To a people who have been dispossessed of their homes and homelands, to a people exiled 
and left to the whims of an occupying army. The news that God is restoring a new city, is fashioning a new home and will live there with you, that's gospel. That is good news. As Cuban theologian Justo Gonzalez would state it, no longer will there be a great separation between heaven and earth. In the incarnation of Christ, God came among humans, human beings as one of them, but still in a hidden fashion. Now in this new creation, God will not be hidden, but will come among, but will come among redeemed humanity in a direct and unmediated way. New creation is characterized by the presence of God who gives life. No longer will you hear, uh, do people have to cry, how long, O Lord? Or hear the taunts of the enemy that would say, where is your God? Because the response will be, cry no longer, because God dwells with you. God is present. And the enemy is absent. New creation is absent of the powers that oppose God and diminish life. In the end, Satan, the beasts and their allies are all defeated. And uh, in their wake, there is an absence of death and of mourning, of crying and pain. And in their place is resurrection. This is where I want us to end. Let's end on the primary thing upon which our hope ultimately rests. Resurrection. Of God bringing broken, destroyed, abused, even dead things back to life. Infusing them with new life. One of the amazing things about the city that comes down out of heaven is that it isn't built from scratch. In God's first work of creation in Genesis, he creates the world out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as the early Latin theologians would say. However, in this final act of recreation, God uses the things that are already there to remake and to renew. In the last chapter, in chapter 22, John tells us that there's a river that runs through the city, and on each side of the river is the tree of life that bears fruit and its leaves heal the nations of all of the effects of the curse that the enemy ushered in generations ago. Verses 1 through 3. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing Twelve crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. God uses gardens and cities. Places he made but that were corrupted by sin and laid waste by the enemy. The Garden of Eden and the city of Jerusalem. He takes those things and infuses them with new life. And then he dwells there and renews them be places for his glory and for his healing. God, God resurrects them. New York pastor Timothy Keller would describe this revelation scene this way. This city, the New Jerusalem, is in fact the same garden that we see in the Genesis account, which was also marked by a river, the presence of the tree of life. But here, 
It's been expanded. It's been remade into the garden city of God. It's the Garden of Eden, yet faithfully cultivated. The fulfillment of the purpose of God is the city. All that was lost in the first garden is resurrected in the last. All that was lost in the city of Jerusalem was resurrected in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And this is all possible because of Christ. In 22 verses 3 through 5, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Resurrection is possible because of Christ's resurrection. John can rest his future and final hope of renewal on the resurrection of Jesus because he knows that in the resurrection of Christ, he had seen the end of history placarded in the midst of history. And the churches to which John wrote, they knew that they could rest their future and final hope of restoration on the resurrection of Jesus because they believed that in the resurrection of Christ, they had seen the end of history, the final scene of history enacted in the midst of their presence, in the midst of their history. In the resurrection, the early Christians saw the vindication of Jesus in his resurrection. And so all of this talk of future hope, of God's final justice and triumph, they knew it was true. And the reason that they knew it was true is they'd seen it displayed in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Uh, let, me just, let me just finish it out this way. So let me just show you this. So here's the deal. Let me just wrap up here. So I have an inna- just an absolute insane number of screws and nails that are on my street. If you drive on my block, 1700 block of E Street, I'm sorry, you're going to get a nail in your tire. Like, my neighbors have been renovating their house, and so I think there's a hole in, like, the construction workers' nail bags, and they just sort of fall out constantly. My tires are getting absolutely shredded. So this past week, what I decided to do is I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick them up and pick all of them up so that they don't. So it's either I pick them up or my tires will. So here's a few of them I started. And they're not even like, I don't even know. Like, it's a silver. Like, why is that on the street? Like, I don't know what you're using that for. So, so I just started to collect them. These were some that were just left in, in my car. Uh, I was driving around. At, I was doing some studying at Wesley Seminary the library, and I, I get out of my car, and I look down, and there's, a, there's, a, there's more screws. And I'm like, I know seminary students aren't building nothing. Why are there screws? It's like they're following me. And we've gone to you know, tire shops multiple times this year to have these things fixed. The thing is, um, uh, it's not the screw's fault. Right? Like the screw's just, it's built to kind of like just go into stuff. Um, but the thing is, they're meant to build houses. They weren't meant to be scattered on the street. They're actually meant to be housed in lumber, to hold up walls and structures to make places safe and warm for people. And the thing is, they just haven't found their place yet. Because our world isn't quite the way. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm getting emotional like about screws. What is that about? <laughs> The reason is that they're just scattered. They haven't found their place yet. 
because our world isn't quite yet the way that God intended it to be. And so things get lost. Things get stuck in places that don't belong. Because we're not there yet. And so as we live in between now and that in, in Revelation 21 and 22, let's remember that there is a day coming. And everyone finds their place. And wherever we've been stuck, we can get unstuck. Whatever's been laid to rest will we'll, we'll receive new life, will receive the breath that is in our lungs so that we can, in that day, pour out our praise to the one who is worthy and the Lamb who sits on the throne. We can experience part of that now. We will taste much of it, even as we anticipate, but we will experience the fullest sense and we will experience it soon. Because Christ overcame the enemy. The dragon is slain. Sin is defeated. And grace is offered. Will you pray for us?